And dear friends, our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in his word, is Hebrews 8, verses 1 to 6. Let me welcome you again to this Sunday service at Christ the King in these remarkable days. I'm glad you're able to join us online. Those of you here in Toronto, those who've gone home elsewhere in Canada or in the world, and others who are joining us from other places this morning, maybe some for the first time, we're glad you're here. It is a huge loss not to be together in physical presence with one another. We all feel that as much as we are grateful for the technology that's available to us. The pastoral team is praying for you, along with other faithful intercessors from our church. We would like to know how we can be praying. So let me invite you to reach out to us in these days uh, to let us know that. And we will try also to be reaching out to you that we could uphold you in prayer uh, in whatever circumstances you find yourselves now. I do trust <laughs> that these services are an encouragement to you, by which I don't mean only that I hope you find them uplifting, but that I trust that they provide something of the encouragement that the pastor who wrote Hebrews says God wants you to have. Which is to say, I hope they give you strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, as Hebrews 6 verse 18 says. Because that is the key to the Christian life, dear friends. Not just in these days, but every day. That we live with our true hope set before us. That we remain always focused on our great salvation, no matter what the circumstances of our lives. And that that's what enables us to hold fast to our confession, to persevere in the life of faith. And at Christ the King, we've been continuing in our ongoing study of the book of Hebrews in these weeks, not because we're in any way avoiding the reality of what's happening in the world, but precisely because we're not doing that. Precisely because we see things as they really are. Precisely because in the midst of the storms of this life, we know that what we need most is to be able to hold fast to our hope. Which means we need to take in the word of God in these days. It is the scriptures that tell us what our hope is and why it's secure. God's words in these times aren't only true, they're precious. They're the bread of life. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16 says, Your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. I'm praying that for you, friends. Today and always, but especially in these days. And I know in some sense it may not seem applicable instantly, but my highest goal in preaching is always that we'll see and be reminded of the greatness and the beauty and the value of Jesus Christ. And that as a result, we'll treasure him above everything else. Because as we've been learning in Hebrews at Christ the King, it's only Jesus who makes our hope secure. 
We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, the pastor writes, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. As a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That was the conclusion of chapter six. And in the last three weeks, we've been considering what the pastors had to say then in chapter seven about Jesus as this high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What it means to say what Psalm 110 verse four says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I know that there's been a, a lot of content in these last few weeks, as is usual in Hebrews. I realize also that it's sometimes hard to concentrate in these days. So allow me to summarize what I think is the central idea of what we've considered in chapter seven. I think the central idea has been that our high priest is eternal. And that our high priest is eternal because, as we've seen, he is the son of God. That is who he's always been. The pastor began to make that point when talking three weeks ago about Melchizedek in chapter 7, verse 3. He wrote that Melchizedek, resembling the son of God, continues a priest forever in the way that the Genesis narrative presents him that Melchizedek was an Old Testament type of Jesus Christ. So that when it's testified of Melchizedek that he lives, as chapter 7, verse 8 said, the point is that we're supposed to see it's ultimately Jesus, our high priest, who has this ongoing eternal life. The reason he does is because he's the son of God. He's always lived He's the son on whom the pastor was focused at the very beginning of Hebrews in chapter one. The one whom God appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. His is the life that was in view when two weeks ago, in verses 15 and 16 of chapter seven, the pastor talked about another priest who arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. In other words, his is the life of the Son of God, the Son, who took on flesh and died on a cross, but did not die eternally. He was resurrected, as we'll celebrate explicitly in two weeks' time. He's ascended now to the right hand of the Father where the words of Psalm 110 verse 4 have been spoken to him. You are a high priest forever. And then last week in verses 23 and 24, we saw it once again. The pastor wrote, the former priests were many in numbers because they were prevented by, prevented by death from continuing in office but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever or remains forever, literally. He always lives to make intercession for them. It's the Son of God 
who's become high priest forever according to the word of the oath. That's where we left off last week in verse 28. Remember, for the law appointed men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been named perfect forever. Hebrews chapter 7 reveals who this high priest has always been, the eternal son of God. And so now as we come into chapter 8, the pastor comes to a bit of a, something of a vista point. His subject hasn't changed, but it's becoming clearer. If chapter 7 was focused on who this high priest has always been, then now in chapter 8, verse 1, and all the way to chapter 10, verse 18, the pastor will be focused on what the eternal Son of God has now become. You hear that present tense reality there in verse 1 of our passage, don't you? If, you? if you have your text, be looking at it as we go. Listen to what the pastor says. This is the theological main point of Hebrews. This is the heartbeat of the sermon, as we've said many times. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's what the pastor has been coming to, and it's what he'll be developing further still. We have now such a high priest. The pastor wants you, he wants us today to grasp the implications of who this high priest now is. The sum of what he has always been and what he has now become. And we've been saying it a lot in various ways, but here it is in summary. The high priest we have is the eternal son who through his obedient incarnate life offered himself in death and is now seated at God's right hand where he's fully able to meet your deepest need, dear friend. Because as we'll see in the weeks ahead, the son, the son has become this effective high priest only by the offering of himself as the once for all, all sufficient sacrifice for sin. That's how this all works. That's how in the words of Hebrews 5 verse 9, the son as Jesus our high priest is the source of eternal salvation. Do you remember when the pastor said that back in chapter 5? If you have your Bibles there, you can just turn back as we reread chapter 5, verses 7 to 10, before we turn our attention to the text that's before us. Chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, that's his incarnation, right? The son partakes of flesh and blood. He becomes a human being. To what end? In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Or if you remember, we said that means to him who was able to save him out of death. Jesus knew he had to die. Jesus knew that's what he'd come to do. He cried out to the one who could save him out of that death. And he was heard, verse 7 says because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
ultimately referring to the cross. And being made perfect through his cross and resurrection, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There it is. Our task now, as we turn to chapters 8 and 9 and 10, is to ask, how do we understand that? How does that all come to be? What exactly was Jesus providing through his obedience that led him to the cross? That's our horizon. And as we begin this morning in chapter 8, verses 1 to 6, what I think we have in this short text is really just a preview of much of what's to come in these next three chapters. And I'm going to try to treat these six verses like a preview, saying some things, but leaving a lot unsaid. It's important this morning, I think, that you see that there are three aspects of Jesus' priestly ministry that appear in these verses, because all three aspects of Jesus' priestly ministry will be what drive the rest of chapters 8 and 9 and 10. We'll have a lot more to say about them as we go in the weeks to come. Here they are in brief. We'll first consider the sanctuary in which Jesus serves. And for us this morning, that's mainly verse 2. We'll then consider, secondly, the sacrifice Jesus offered in verses 3 to 5. And then thirdly, we'll consider the covenant Jesus mediates in verse 6 where we look ahead directly to the rest of chapter 8, which focuses on that covenant. And I think those are the three key themes for our study to come now for several weeks. The sanctuary in which Jesus serves, the sacrifice which Jesus offered, and the covenant which Jesus mediates. How those three themes intersect and interrelate and are connected to one another is the key to understanding the nature of the high priest's ministry. All three of those things are involved in how the eternal Son of God, as Jesus, has become our high priest, how he is the source of eternal salvation. So this morning's the preview. The first aspect of this priestly ministry is the sanctuary in which he serves. Notice in the text how verse 2 is a continuation of the sentence that began in verse 1. The pastor says in verse 1, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And here's verse 2, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That's where Jesus, our high priest, is ministering. He is a minister, the pastor writes, using a word that, that describes priestly ministry in the Greek Old Testament. He's a priestly minister in the holy places or in the true tent. I think the ESV has it exactly right in how they translate this. I think the holy places is referring to the same place as the holy tent. And to explain what they both mean, I think the simplest way I can put it is to say that this describes the place where God dwells. 
by definition, where God dwells is where the holy places are. It's God's presence that makes them holy places. So I guess the question I have is, where is that? This is a basic Bible question. Where does God dwell? You don't have to guess. It's there at the end of verse 1. He dwells in heaven, which is, of course, where our high priest has sat down, right? At the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. The heavenly dwelling place of God is the true sanctuary. Now, obviously, by calling it the true tent here in verse 2, there's meant to be a contrast of some kind. And the pastor, in fact, tells us what that contrast is in the way verse 2 ends. The contrast is between the true tent that is set up by the Lord in heaven, as opposed to that which is set up by man on earth. The reference to a tent here, set up by man. Do you know what the pastor is referring to in, with that wording? Some of you will if you've read your Old Testament or know it. The pastor is referring there to the tabernacle. To the portable, but not simple, structure that God instructed Moses to build to house the Ark of the Covenant. You can read all about this in the book of Exodus, chapters 25 and 26 and 27. And then also later on in Exodus, you can read about Moses constructing this tabernacle or overseeing its construction. You know how if you've ever read Exodus, the culminating moment of the entire thing comes then in the last chapter in Exodus chapter 40 when it says in verse 33, so Moses finished his work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That is the tent on earth. It was glorious. But what we quickly realize it wasn't was permanent. Because the tabernacle might have been filled with the glory of the Lord at key moments, but it wasn't the actual dwelling place of God. You see? It was meant to portray that heavenly reality. It wasn't itself the actual place. It served a vital role in the life of Israel. And part of the role the tabernacle served, of course, was to house the Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever read Leviticus, you know it was the job of the high priest to enter into the most holy place in the tabernacle, the place behind the veil, where the Ark was to be kept with the mercy seat on it. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter into that most holy place to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. As you also may realize, once the city of Jerusalem became the capital of Israel, David's great desire ultimately to be fulfilled by Solomon was to build a more permanent tent, if you will, to build the temple. The temple then maintains the basic same idea as the tabernacle, except that it's not portable. But even then, that wasn't where God actually dwelled. Solomon himself knew that. 
Solomon himself recognized that the earthly temple, as splendid as it was, couldn't rival heaven, which he says is God's actual dwelling place in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 30. So that the point is that the tent and later the temple, where the man-made but God-given structures that the, the, the tent and, and later the temple were the man-made and God-given structures that represented the dwelling place of God. So that while the Lord could at times manifest his presence in those actual structures, the whole point is that those man-made places weren't the actual dwelling places of the Lord. Start, if you want, by looking over to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. This idea returns in larger ways in chapter 9. The pastor says, therefore, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. You hear it. Now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Or glancing back still in chapter 9 to verses 11 and 12, you see it again. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this earthly creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. In other words, the holy places where Jesus is ministering is heaven itself. That's where he now appears in the presence of God. And just a footnote to ensure that this is clear, he appears there as the physical man, Jesus Christ. This is not a distinction between earthly physical reality and heavenly ethereal or mental realities that have no physical component. Such thinking is alien to the Bible and certainly alien to the pastor writing Hebrews. The point here then is that the means by which Christ can do this to enter into the actual place of the dwelling of God is by his own blood, not the blood of animal sacrifices. The tabernacle erected in Israel pointed forward to the tabernacle. Jesus himself would enter upon his death and resurrection. The tent constructed in the wilderness was derivative in its design from God's eternal heavenly residence, his true dwelling place. Let me just emphasize that this is not something that the pastor writing Hebrews has suddenly stumbled upon. The Old Testament itself provides the foundation for identifying the heavenly dwelling place of God as the true sanctuary that is then replicated by the earthly tent established by Moses or later on the temple. I'll list just a few references to this idea from the Old Testament. Take the Psalms, Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Psalm 18, verse 6. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Psalm 29, verse 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare, and in his temple all cry glory. 
The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Or famously, when the prophet Isaiah has his vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, it's in the temple, right? Meaning, God's heavenly temple. Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 3, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Or listen to Micah 1, verse 2, contrast the place of the Lord with the earth. Hear, O peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. You get the point. The true tent or temple is the dwelling place of God in heaven the place where God reigns and rules. The holy places describe heaven itself, and it's there, dear friends, at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high where our high priest has sat down. And he is the Son of God as Jesus. He is the crucified, now resurrected, and ascended man. He is the greatest priest for he dwells in God's presence and ministers in the heavenly realm where God dwells. That's the sanctuary in which Jesus serves. He has gone into the inner place behind the curtain. And we'll have more to say about it later in Hebrews. Secondly, though much more briefly, we consider the sacrifice Jesus offered in verses 3 to 5. Pastors established already that Jesus is the minister of God's true tabernacle. In verse 3, he points out that a minister must carry out a specific ministry. And this being a priestly ministry, the pastor reflects on the responsibility of priests. He says in verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. In other words, the priests were to express thanksgiving to God and to atone for sin committed in Israel. So the pastor seems to think, if Jesus is a priest, as Psalm 110 says he is, he must also offer a sacrifice. This is simply the nature of a priesthood, to offer a sacrifice to God. In other words, it's the fundamental role of a priest, to procure access to God through sacrifices, just as the high priest in Israel offered sacrifices to obtain atonement and the forgiveness of sins. But then in verse 4, the pastor notes how Jesus, though he's a priest who must offer a sacrifice, the pastor notes how he's distinct from the priests who served under the Mosaic law. Because Jesus is not now and never was an earthly priest. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all pastor says. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, that's not what Jesus did. Two weeks ago, we considered how Jesus was not a priest in accord with the law because he wasn't of the tribe of Levi, from which the priests were to be taken. Jesus's priesthood isn't an earthly one. The pastor's already said that, but he expands on it now. 
and it connects to the sacrifice that the priest offers. The Levitical priests offered their sacrifices, the pastor reminds us, at the earthly tabernacle. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, the pastor says in verse 5. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Earthly priests serve at the earthly sanctuary. The tabernacle God commanded Israel to build. And the basic point is that the earthly sanctuary was never meant to be ultimate. The law and the earthly tabernacle were intended to be in force under the old covenant. But as such, they were, not set in they were set in place only for a limited period of salvation history. I'd like to dwell on this for just a moment longer because I think it's crucial to understand it. Notice how those last words in verse 5 are in quote marks. See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. It's in quotes because it is a quote. It's taken from Exodus chapter 25, verse 40, where God speaks to Moses in Exodus 25 in the midst of many instructions pertaining to the furnishings and the building of the tabernacle. And the point God makes is that behind all of that detail, the Lord had shown Moses a pattern. Having witnessed that pattern, Moses was to make everything having to do with the tabernacle. The whole of the tabernacle in its designs and its furnishings and what those furnishings and designs accommodated in the activities of the priests who ministered there, it was all a shadow of an original heavenly reality, the pastor says. Think about that. You don't have a shadow unless there's something casting the shadow. Right? There was an original reality that Moses was shown. It was that original reality that stood behind everything Moses was now being told to build and to set up. So here is what I think is one of the great questions of Hebrews. What exactly was it that Moses saw? I don't think this means Moses saw a giant model version of what he was then supposed to replicate in miniature precise detail. That would not make sense. For one thing, there would be no separate most holy place in the heavenly tabernacle. The layout of the tabernacle Moses built wouldn't be relevant in heaven. No, it's not that. The ESV rightly decides to translate the term in verse 5 as copy, but that term may be misunderstood. It does not mean copy in the sense we may take it, meaning a copy like on a copy machine, where it's a one-to-one -one correspondence to the image. It's not that. As one commentator puts it, this pattern and shadow anticipated the ministry inaugurated by the exaltation of the Son and now available for God's people. So here's what I think. I can't prove it, but what I think Moses saw is the heavenly pattern. He saw the genuine tabernacle. 
he saw the dwelling place of God himself. And I think he saw, as part of that amazing revelation, something of the genuine act of atonement, of Christ's offering, his sacrifice, that somehow, in some way, that allowed Moses to understand what the sacrificial system would be pointing towards, he was given the ability to see this. I don't know exactly how it worked, but the point is that Jesus Christ, God's son, has not now come to be the best and final earthly priest. Rather, he's come to be the fulfillment of the pattern long ago shown to Moses and his people. And having fulfilled what Moses saw, the orientation now is entirely on his high priestly ministry in heaven. The reality has come. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. That's the real thing in heaven that cast a shadow on Mount Sinai that Moses copied. All that we might understand the significance of what God himself would one day bring about. And we'll see this in great detail in Hebrews 9, but it's all through his own self-offering on the cross that Jesus makes it happen. This is what we saw also last week in verse 27. He has no need, the pastor says, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The sacrifice Jesus offers brings about the reality Moses somehow was able to glimpse way back in Exodus chapter 25. Which brings us finally then to verse 6 and the covenant Jesus mediates, though all we'll do here is comment briefly on it. Verse 6 is transitional. It leads us right into the rest of Hebrews chapter 8. Returning to the emphasis we found in verse 1, the pastor says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry. We know now it's a heavenly priestly ministry. That's the contrast. The contrast with verse 4, which said, Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. He isn't, of course. This is what verse 6 says. But as it is in these last days, when God has fulfilled his promises... The Son has obtained a more excellent ministry, appropriate for the heavenly sanctuary. But what is the difference between a high priestly ministry appropriate for the heavenly dwelling place of God and those that were confined to its earthly representation? Well, to only begin to grasp the superior nature of Jesus' priesthood, the pastor says, requires that we consider something further that his self-offering hasn't just done away with the shadow of the Mosaic priesthood. It's brought about the reality of a new covenant with God. That Jesus' offering of himself in bringing about the forgiveness of our sins has also established the foundation of a better covenant. Jesus' role as the covenant mediator is brought about through the sacrifice of himself. 
This is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus said to his disciples on the night he would be betrayed. Our high priest's superior ministry has effected a covenant enacted on better promises, as we'll see next time. Promises of complete forgiveness, of the writing of the law on our hearts, of intimate access to the presence of God himself. Or, in other words, the change of priesthood has produced a change in the whole covenant relationship of God with his people. It is to that change that our attention will shift next time in the rest of Hebrews 8. Friends, as we move forward into Hebrews, we'll have much more to say about the sanctuary in which Jesus now ministers. About the sacrifice, the self-sacrifice that Jesus himself offered and its great significance. And about the covenant that Jesus mediates through that sacrifice. But perhaps as I close for our time this morning, I'll simply return to the summary point in verse 1. The pastor wrote, we have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Studying this passage this week reminded me of another vision of that heavenly throne in the scriptures. I think you'll see some of the ways in which what the pastor says in Hebrews 8 is echoed here as well, where in John's vision of Revelation 5, verses 11 to 13, we read this. Then I looked, John writes, and I heard around the throne, around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen.